Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Peter Duffy tells us about three bishops, the impact of the Reformation on their lives, and how each suffered under the Spanish Inquisition. I'm going to begin with a warning. This morning I'm going to be talking quite a lot about sin. Now I know that many of you here are very innocent and unfamiliar with that word and what it means. If there's anything that I say about it that upsets you or causes you alarm, please feel free to leave the room quietly. <laughs> if on the other hand you like what you hear and want to learn more about it, please do speak to me and I will see if a special personalised tuition can be arranged with my colleague, Mr. Beelzebub. Now, more seriously, I will be talking about original sin. That sin which, according to St. Augustine, we are all sons and daughters, especially daughters, born with, and have been since Adam and Eve were driven from the Garden of Eden. Thus, even the most innocent of us are sinful from our beginnings, and living our daily lives just adds to that sin. And as a result, we are condemned to damnation, less redeemed, justified in the eye of God. The medieval church developed a scheme for dealing with this problem. Repentance from sin, coupled with good works, would shorten the time spent in purgatory, the waiting room before judgment, or even eliminate it completely. Good works could be paid masses, prayers for the souls of the dead, in churches, monasteries, and chantry chapels. These could even be in the form of money to pay for indulgences, sold by men such as the corrupt pardoner in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. The church had an infinite treasury of merit, which the Pope and priests alone could access for this purpose. It became a major source of revenue for the church, used for maintaining the papal bureaucracy in Rome, for the rebuilding of St. Peter's, and for financing the papal territorial ambitions in Italy. Yet increasingly in the late Middle Ages, there was concern amongst thoughtful churchmen and lay people at the perceived corruption of the church, and there were many plans for reform that came to nothing. However, the most famous was, of course, the attack on the system by Martin Luther, an attack which struck at the church root and branch, at the papacy, the role of the priesthood in granting forgiveness of sins, the authority of church traditions as against biblical teaching. Citing St. Paul, Luther declared that justification was through faith alone and not through works, and that thus the whole Catholic Church structure, as it then existed, was a sham and the work of the devil. He called the Pope Antichrist. The Pope in turn excommunicated him. Europe divided into two conflicting camps, one remaining loyal to the Roman Catholic Church, which began its own process of reform, reform that we call the counter or Catholic Reformation at the Council of Trent. The other camp was attached to various forms of Protestantism, the word encompassing different reform movements that rejected Roman Catholicism. These reform movements were common in what is now Switzerland, Eastern France, Northern Germany, Scandinavia, the Netherlands. England was a contested zone. So today we're going to look at the Marian Counter-Reformation, that brief period between the death of the Protestant Edward VI in 1553 and that of his successor, the Catholic Queen Mary in 1558. This was a period when it appeared highly probable that the tide of Protestant Reformation that had flowed strongly through Europe and through England would be fully rolled back, in England at least, and as a result, possibly elsewhere in Europe too. Now, when we look at history, the past, it is very easy to to compartmentalize it into periods and movements, and to assume that these have a life and impetus of their own. Now, some of these you'll recognize, the Roman Empire, the Dark Ages, Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the Reformation. Because they were, they had to be. 
what happened was inevitable. Yet such an approach misses two vital factors. Firstly, that of human agency. Without subscribing to Carlyle's theory of history as being the record of the deeds of great men, it is true that the thoughts and actions of individuals do make a difference and do change the course of history. Secondly, there's contingency, chance. Nowhere can these two features be seen more clearly than in the history of the Marian Counter-Reformation, where the lives of three archbishops, each as well a primate and as head of the church in their own country, intersected during the five years of Mary's reign. Thomas Cranmer was the Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury, although he was still officially a Roman Catholic when he was appointed. The Roman Catholic Cardinal Reginald Pole succeeded him as Archbishop. Bartolome de Carranza was following the work with Pole on the Catholic Reformation in Europe and in England. He was appointed Archbishop of Toledo by Philip II of Spain. All three were accused of heresy. For Cranmer, this led to the stake. Pole died while under recall by the Pope to Rome to face heresy charges. And Carranza lived in a state of limbo for 17 years, whilst his heresy case was batted to and fro between Rome and Spain before it was finally settled. So let us begin with Cranmer. When you go to Oxford, that city of dreaming spires and lost causes, you will find on St. Giles, between the Randolph Hotel and the West Wing of Balliol College, the Martyrs Memorial. It was erected in 1843 to remind passers-by of the Protestant foundations of the Church of England, as against what was being called the Oxford Movement, that was at the time promulgating the idea of the Catholic roots of the Church of England. The memorial commemorated Hugh Latimer, the Bishop of Winchester, Nicholas Ridley, the Bishop of London, and Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury and Primate of England. All were Protestants and all were burnt at the stake. Now, the actual burning occurred just round the corner in the broad in front of Balliol. If you go through a narrow passageway in Balliol between the first and the main quadrangles, you will find the old gates to the college entrance hanging on the wall. These were reputedly singed by the fires of the executions and have been kept as a reminder of events ever since and as a warning to Balliol students of the penalties for heresy, which is why so many students of Balliol, including the present one, have ended up as prime ministers and champions of orthodox thinking. So we do need to ask what brought Cranmer to this terrible fate. He was born in 1489 and by 1526 was a middle-aged orthodox ordained doctor of divinity at Cambridge. However, his opinion was sought on the king's great matter. How Henry VIII was to have his marriage with Catherine of Aragon annulled by the Pope. Cranmer suggested that the universities of Europe should be canvassed for their opinion as to whether the king held supreme jurisdiction power within his realm, overriding that of the Pope. This suggestion brought him to the attention of the king, and in 1532, he was appointed as England's ambassador at the court of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Whilst on the continent, he met a number of continental reformers. These men, in their writings and their works, had, following Martin Luther's example, set out the great themes of the Protestant Reformation and also the Catholic Counter-Reformation. These were original sin, justification, that is being saved from the effects of sin in the eyes of God, whether it was by works and faith or by faith alone, the sacraments and the role of the sacraments, what and who made up the church, and what were the sources of ecclesiastical authority, and whether these had derived from the scriptures alone or from the historical church. What were the roles of the priesthood, the episcopate, and particularly of the Pope? And intrinsically linked to these questions was that of the ideology derived from doctrine and what this implied for authority over church structure and over resources by the church hierarchy and or the secular powers. All these formed the basis of the Catholic reformers, such as Erasmus and Luther, and the early Protestants, radical analyses of the church of their times. They had an impact on Cranmer, and in a sign of how his thinking was evolving at this time, he secretly married, which as a priest he was not allowed to do by canon law. He was called back to London by the king, and much to his surprise, he was made Archbishop of Canterbury, his appointment being speedily approved by the Pope. Immediately after his formal swearing, his oath of loyalty to the Pope, he swore a second one, 
saying that the first oath should not overrule the law of God and his loyalty to the king. His most urgent task was to arrange the annulment of Henry's marriage to Catherine, and he achieved this in 1532. The immediate impact of this was to bastardize Henry and Catherine's daughter, Mary, and this was the count she held against Cranmer when she became queen. Immediately after the annulment, Cranmer also validated Henry's and Anne's marriage, crowned and anointed Anne as queen, and when she gave birth to a daughter, Elizabeth, Cranmer baptized the child and stood as godfather. Now, a key moment in Cranmer's work of reformation of the English church came in 1534 and the passage through Parliament of the Act of Supremacy, whereby the English monarch was recognized as supreme head of the Church of England. Yet pre-Henry VIII's death in 1547, little changed in fundamental doctrine. All that which was included in the reform program was only things indifferent in matters of faith. Doctrine was left largely unchanged. The substitution of royal for papal supremacy was one matter, as was the appropriation of monastic and chantry lands and properties. But the language of Cranmer's writing at the time indicates that he personally had gone further along the Lutheran path. By describing the Pope as Antichrist, as did Luther, who was also rejecting the role of the Roman Church as operator of the machinery of penance and the provider of the route to salvation. In the years immediately following 1534, seven bishops of Protestant inclination were appointed to the Episcopal bench. Such men, together with Cranmer, over the next 13 years, were to engage in a passionate struggle to control official church doctrine, and thus the ideology of political power. Hilary Mantel's books on this period, a real flavor of the conflicts that were going on, whirling, circling around the king, shifting him one way and then the other. So I'm just literally summarizing in a couple of paragraphs what Hilary Mantel took three whopping volumes to do. Now, opposing them were bishops such as Gardner and Bonner, who were prepared at the time to support royal premacy but of a reformed church with a Catholic doctrine. Final doctrinal and thus ideological decisions rested with the king, who frequently was motivated by domestic or foreign imperatives, rather than purely theological principles. The results were that at one time there appeared to be a reversion to Catholic doctrines, that other times moved to Protestant ones, as it occurred with the proposed marriage of the king with the Protestant Anne of Cleves, called the Flanders Mare, which is not very kind. This would have linked England with the North European Schmalkaldic League, the Union of Protestant States against the Catholic Holy Roman Empire. So you can see how in that conflict, the position of Henry VIII and England would have been a great weight in the balance between the two powers. Yet also within each official statement of faith, it's possible to see elements drawn from both groups. The 10 articles of 1536, for example, can be seen as being largely Protestant inspired it is also just as possible to see them as retaining significant Catholic elements. All this is the more possible because in many ways, formal separation in some doctrinal matters had not yet taken place. And both sides, when debating doctrine, used language and concepts that were common. Both sides are fishing in the same water. Papalism was thus a sine qua non for the Reformation in England. However, the role that Protestantism was to play remained uncertain, at least till Henry VIII died. Yet, in spite of Cranmer's personal reforming opinions on doctrine, he and the other bishops followed Henry's largely Catholic doctrinal rulings. The Protestants were prepared to accept just Henry's rulings on doctrine, so long as the reforms of such matters as the abolition of the monasteries, the Bible and the liturgy in English, the abolition of holy days and relics went forward. On the other hand, the Catholics were prepared just to accept such reforms, so long as doctrine was preserved. Up to 1547 and Henry's death, what they all agreed on was royal supremacy. The balance between the two groups was maintained by Henry himself. Doctrine that he declared was law, and disagreement on religious doctrine was not only heresy, but treason. He was even-handed in this. On one day, executing three reformers who pushed too far, and three Catholics, who had denied the royal supremacy. The question was never fully answered as whether it was in the long term possible to have royal supremacy undergirded by Catholic theology. After Henry VIII's death and the accession of Edward VI, Cranmer was able to take forward a program of doctrinal reform. 
The first fruits of this were seen in the issue in 1548 of a collection of homilies, prepared sermons on agreed themes, largely written by Cranmer himself. These were intended to be read regularly to congregations and to set out the official version of doctrine. At the core of these lay the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone. The political implications of the doctrinal rupture were also seen by the Roman Catholic Princess Mary. Explaining to the council her continued use of the Catholic mass, she stated that she was obeying her father's will until her brother's majority. Mary correctly saw that if religious establishment were to be changed, so too could be the arrangements for succession. Now, the program for religious change incited a revolt in the West Country, brutally put down by government forces supported by Cranmer. He reserved his special vituperation for the rebels' demand that Cardinal Pole be brought to England and become a member of the council. He bluntly said, Surely I have read a book of his making, that whosoever should read it, if he have a true heart to our late sovereign, Lord King Henry VIII, or to this realm, he will judge Cardinal Pole neither worthy to live in this realm, nor yet to live. For he doth extend all his wits and eloquence in that book to persuade the Bishop of Rome, the Emperor, the French King, and all other princes to invade this realm by force. And he added, Presbyter, and I am sure that if you have him, you must have the Bishop of Rome also. Cranmer, in a comment on a situation that was to be Devil Pole's later return to England, also responded to the rebels' demand for the monastic and chantry lands be used partly to pray for the king and the commonwealth and partly for charitable purposes. Cranmer knew well that by this time the political settlement was tied to the religious one and Henry's sale of monastic lands and Edward's of the chantry's lands had created a group of landowners who benefited from the sales and who were well represented in Parliament. In 1548, Cranmer issued a catechism based on one by Luther, stressing that works could play no part in salvation. The new prayer book was issued in 1549 and revised in 1552, and Cranmer promulgated the 42 articles, a summary of the beliefs of the Anglican Church, contrasted with those of the Catholic. The Bible was placed in all churches, so that everyone had a chance to hear and understand it personally, rather than having it interpreted by a special priestly caste. All these were in English and re represented the full-scale installation of Protestant doctrine in the Church of England. Yet Northumberland's role as guardian of the king depended on young Edward's life continuing. But by the middle of 1555, it was clear that it was coming to an end. He was dying of tuberculosis. When this happened, Henry VIII's 1534 Act of Succession appointed the Catholic Mary to be queen. Northumberland and Edward sought to divert the succession to the Protestant Lady Jane Grey, the granddaughter of Henry VII. Cranmer signed his support for this. When Edward died, Lady Jane was proclaimed queen. However, Mary with her supporters swept into London and assumed the crown in a coup de main, similar to that by which her grandmother, Isabella of Spain, had seen the crown of Castile when her half-brother died. Lady Jane was arrested and later executed. Cranmer was arrested, tried for treason and condemned to death. Before this was carried out, he was sent to Oxford for a second trial for heresy. He was forced to watch his companions Latimer and Ridley being burnt after their conviction. He was deprived of his archbishopric by the Pope and Cardinal Pole, who was then papal legate to England, was immediately appointed in his place. He was required to debate his religious stance with Spanish Dominicans, more expert in Catholic theology than any of his previous opponents. These were from the group headed by Bartolomé de Carranza, who had been brought to England by the Queen's husband, Philip II, to help Cardinal Pole in the work of returning England to Catholicism and to papal obedience. Mary's marriage to Philip was marked by a swing in English foreign policy from support to the northern Protestant states to align with the Catholic Habsburg realms. Cranmer began to recant, slowly at first, and then finally, totally, hoping that his life would be spared. When it was confirmed that Mary was intent on his death and her revenge for his bastardization, for which he held him responsible, he very publicly revoked all his recantations, placing first his right hand that had signed them in the final execution. 
having the courage actually to stand that sort of physical thing. Now, our second Archbishop, Archbishop Cardinal Pole, on the Plantagenet royal line, Pole's further education, including time at the University of Padua, was funded by Henry VIII. In the early 1530s, he was asked by Henry to obtain an opinion from the University of Paris as to the validity of Henry's marriage. This was the approach that Cranmer has suggested. In response, Pole questioned Cranmer's policy of submission of the question to the universities, expressed considerable concern about the potential of a problematic succession leading to a civil war, and recommended that Henry should submit to papal arbitration. After this, Pole continued his studies at Padua and elsewhere in Italy. It was expected that he would eventually return to England to take on a high political role. However, by 1535, and following the Act of Supremacy, Pole was being pressed by Henry to provide a written opinion on the legality of the king's marriage to Catherine of Aragon and the papal dispensation that had enabled it. Pole did respond, but not in the way that Henry had hoped. He attributed the responsibility of the present ills to the work of flatterers about the king. And very specifically, he pinpointed Cranmer, and I quote what he said. What you desired for your gratification, that's managed to Anderlin, was anticipated by that man, Thomas Cranmer, whose desire was for his own gratification. Hole then told the king bluntly that what he was doing was sinful, that he should begin the work of restoration by an act of penance. This is a theme that Pole returned to time and time again in his writing and public speeches, the need for the sacrament of penance as a means to repair the damage caused by sin, and the need for a dedicated church hierarchy to deliver it. Pole exhorted Henry to return to the Catholic Church and to acknowledge again the supremacy of the Pope. And I quote, Come into the church, my prince. There Christ dwells. No light of Christ appears outside the church. And it is here the Pole announced a doctrine and a consequent ideology that was to be one that was evidenced in his work throughout his life. This was that there was one universal church. This was the Roman Catholic one, headed by the Pope, whose members were in communion with each other and with Christ. Into this church and to salvation was by the path of penance. Within the church, there was also an entirely separate spiritual governance headed by the Pope. There was a subordinate one, which because it dealt with secular, not spiritual matters, was headed by emperors and kings. The two functions, the religious and the secular, were by divine ordinance, not to be combined in one man. However, Pole went a considerable way outside his theological brief in offering advice to Henry. Claiming that he was risking his own head and fortune to defend Mary's right to the succession, he reminded Henry that Henry's father had murdered his because the latter's Plantagenet blood gave him an excellent claim to the throne. Pole went on to arouse the English, and particularly Londoners, as to the sins that were being committed in the king's name. Worst of all, he specifically called on Charles V and his Spanish soldiers to rescue Catherine of Aragon. While Pole considered that this advice repaid Henry for the cost of his education, it is not surprising that Henry did not see it quite that way. He did not accept Pole's suggestions and indeed reacted violently against him. For years, Pole believed that his life was in danger from Henry's agents. In fact, memories of his family, including his brother and his mother, were actually executed by Henry. Now, in 1536, the Pope, having made Pole a cardinal, along with his then friends, Contarini and Caratha, of whom more later, he called on them to investigate the curia, the papal court, and to propose reforms. The result was a stinging report concerning the reform of the church on the widespread corruption within the curia. Mirroring Pole's earlier advice to Henry, the report laid the blame for this on flatterers in the court, who'd advised the Pope that he was above the law and had powers to dispense it. The report then went on to list the series of resultant corruptions. Inappropriate people were appointed as clerics, as bishops, and even as cardinals, all of whom had never intended to resign in their bishoprics. Pluralism was of Episcopal appointments, especially amongst the cardinals, was rife. The main target was the raising of money through the selling of dispensations, absolutions, and indulgences, exactly the features in the curia's activities that Luther had attacked. 
what the reformers emphasized that all these activities were in fact illegal. However, a pattern of resistance by vested interests indicates why the recommendations in the report failed completely. When it was submitted to the College of Cardinals, the recommendations for reform were blocked on two grounds. Firstly, the admission of the need for reform would give useful ammunition to the Protestants, did certainly. Secondly, that the analysis was wrong and that all was needed was the enforcement of existing laws, but that didn't happen. The core of the problem was that even men such as Contarini, Carafa and Pohl, although classed as reformers, were themselves part of the problem and they could not, as Luther did, break away from it without breaking away from the church itself. All accepted pensions from the very curia they were supposed to reform. Any short-term reform of such situations was bound to fail as so many vested interests supposed it. What did eventually happen following the failure of structural reform was a focusing of papal interest on the reform of doctrine and the suppression of heresy. Now, Cardinal Contarini, who I mentioned, had come through a parallel reading of Paul and Augustine to a similar view on justification to Luther's. Yet whilst being aware of Luther's writings and agreeing with on justification by faith alone, he did not follow him along the path of rejection of the role of penance, the sacraments, and the hierarchy of the church. Paul, through his relationship with Contarini, came to a similar destination. Where Contarini and Pole differed from the Protestants in their approach was whether in the process of justification, repentance for, and punishment of such sins needed also to be carried out through the penitential machinery of the church. Contarini and Pole believed that the Catholic Church could be brought to accept this latter interpretation of the doctrine of justification at a general council of the church, as at this time there existed no formal authoritative declaration by a general church council on the subject of justification. If the Catholic Church could at the same time be seen to be carrying out a program of internal reform, then the grounds might be created that could lead to a rapprochement between the Catholic and the Protestants. Contarini attempted to negotiate this position with Protestant representatives at Regensburg in 1546, but largely as a result of papal intransigence, the negotiation failed, and he came close to achieving a rapprochement. And the Pope dug his heels in, and the movement was not allowed to go forward. Yet this approach was to inform Pohl's early work at the Council of Trent until his defeat over the doctrine of justification. The Catholic definition of justification would have to differ fundamentally from the Protestant one, and also worked with a logic which supported the church sacramental machinery and thus justified its priestly structure. The doctrinal question of justification remained a minefield as the doctrine of justification by faith alone had also become for many senior members of the Catholic Church, including Carafa, the other person I mentioned, the touchstone of Lutheranism and thus heresy. The papal inquisition, headed at this time by Carafa, was instituted in order to discover and to break Protestant groups and sympathizers at all levels, including the most senior levels in the church. Pohl's position became increasingly difficult and he took refuge in silence on this subject. Carafa remained suspicious of Pohl and his associates, convinced that they could be the source of an infection that could destroy the church. This suspicion was to manifest itself later in the papal conclave, where Pohl failed to be elected Pope by one vote only, and where Carafa accused him of heresy. But before this, Pohl remained high in the confidence of the then Pope, to the extent that he was appointed one of the three papal legates to the Council of Trent. He had been called for by the Emperor, Charles V, and set up by the Pope to consider and to recommend reform of the Church doctrine and operations. In his address to the assembled Church Fathers at the opening of the Council, Pohl made this a call to repentance, and it's possible to see here how fundamental to Pope was his deeply held belief in the doctrine of penance as a necessary part of the process of redemption and thus justification. Now, following the Council's early deliberations, the legates, including Pope, wrote to the Pope saying that the assembled bishops wanted a number of very specific reforms from the papacy. Firstly, that the exemptions from episcopal jurisdiction should be eliminated along with the special indulgences for funding the rebuilding of St. Peter's 
and for the Crusades. In Pole's mind, there was a need to address the Protestants' withdrawal of obedience to papal authority by resolving both the questions of administrative and doctrinal reform. The two were in effect linked, and one was insufficient without the other. Only by addressing the Protestants' reasoning in both areas could unity be re-established. And Pole still hoped that this might be achieved. Sadly, the Council did not accept his opinion on justification by faith alone, accompanied by the machinery of penance, and he withdrew from his deliberations, citing your health. Yet by 1554, he had accepted the council's decision. His view was that conscience must be obeyed until the majority declare otherwise. Now, following Mary's accession to the throne of England, Pole was appointed papal legate with plenary powers to reflect the return of the country to the Catholic Church. King Philip of Spain, Mary's husband, arranged for Bartolomé de Carranza, and other Spanish Dominicans to assist Pole in this work. Carranza's role included both visitations of the universities and preparation of the injunctions following the London Synod that Pole called in 1555. Pole's position on the work that needed to be done in England followed from the fact that by the mid-1550s, the schism had lasted for 20 years. There was thus a whole generation that had grown up without belonging to the Roman Catholic Church. The first act, therefore, was, as might be expected from Pole, a highly public ritual marked by the King, Queen and Parliament, formally repenting and requesting Pole as papal legate for absolution, and the restoration of the English church and community to full communion with the Catholic Church. Now, a later commentator said that the religious priorities in evidence in the attempt to re-establish Catholic beliefs and practice in Mary's reign closely parallel much that is often thought to be most characteristic of the later Catholic Reformation. This should not be surprising given that the interests and history of two of those most deeply involved in the work of the London Synod, Hold himself and Carranza. At the core of the restoration process was the London Synod called by Pole in 1555. The purpose of this was to re-establish the Catholic Church's authority and practice. Looking at their earlier statements, it is possible to see a close match between the themes of much of these and the decrees of the Synod, covering, for example, church unity, papal supremacy, acceptance of the decrees of the church councils, the residence of bishops, suitability of clergy for appointments, plurality, simony, that's paying for positions, and sinecures. Their work for restoration of the Catholic Church, even though it was to prove abortive for reasons outside their control, derived from their own personal involvement in the mainstream of Catholic reform at, at Trent and elsewhere. While still involved in all the work flowing from the Marian restoration of Catholicism in England, Pole was caught up in the backwash of the conflict between Caratha, Pope, and Philip in his role of King of Naples, threatening an invasion of the papal territories in Italy. The association of Pole with Philip led eventually to the loss of his legateship and then through the resuscitation of Carafa's ancient fears of Pole's heresy to the initiation of an inquisitorial investigation against him. Recalled to Rome, possibly to be imprisoned, Pole was saved by Mary. Initially, she refused entry to the messenger carrying the recall notice. She then insisted that if there was to be a trial, it should be in England. Were the Pope not to agree to this, Mary went so far as to threaten further schism. The sad affair was only concluded by the death of Mary and of Pole on the same day. An extraordinary coincidence. Although Philip had been given the, the title of king at the time of his marriage to Mary, he was not to be granted full regal powers until the birth of an heir. Sadly for the Catholic Reformation in England, no heir was born. The Protestant Elizabeth came to the throne reversing much of that had been done to restore Catholicism, restoring much of Cranmer's work, moving England's foreign policy gradually to oppose Spain and to support the Dutch in their conflict with Philip. The Victorians had two classifications for sportsmen, gentlemen for amateurs and players for professionals. If Pole, who came late, if at all, to formal theology can be counted as a gentleman, Bartolome de Carranza was certainly a player. He trained at Alcatraz Hernández, a university just outside Madrid, 
where the focus was on theology, other Spanish universities, such as Salamanca, concentrated on canon law. He joined the Dominicans, took his doctorate in Rome, and taught theology at the College of San Gregorio. There was in Spain in the 1520s, 30s, a movement whose members were known as the Alumbrados, the Illuminated Ones, similar to the Devotio Moderna in the Netherlands, and sympathetic to Erasmus's thinking, seeking a more direct and personal relationship with God. Critically included within this group, there were a number of men who were close to Charles V. During Charles' absence in 1529, a circle of Alambrados in Valladolid was broken by the Inquisition, and descendants of the Valladolid group were also to be caught up in the Inquisition in 1558, and their connections with Carranza were to contribute eventually to his downfall. It may have been precisely this element of Erasmian influence priority in his life and in his writings that made Carranza vulnerable to accusations of unorthodoxy and indeed of heresy later in his life. Charles V appointed him as one of the imperial theologians at the Council of Trent, and his writings, opinions, and sermons whilst there give a clear indication of his highly structured approach to theology based on the doctrine set out in the work of the Dominican's founder, St. Thomas Aquinas. Carranza addressed a number of key problems facing the Council setting out his propositions in a clear yet densely argued format. What is certain from the texts is that, that in those areas where he was addressing and rebutting the Protestant challenge to received Catholic doctrine, he had closely studied and analyzed the works of his opponents. The actual expression of such ideas, even to rebut them, was later to provide grounds for his critics. Whilst at Trent, Carranza also met Pole, and this earlier contact was later to be used by his enemies to suggest that Pole had not only infected him with his Lutheran ideas, particularly on justification, but that also together they had used their time there to infect others also. It was this linkage with Pole that was used with great effect against Carranza. From one element of his work at Trent, it is possible to gain an insight into the more spiritual and inspirational side of Carranza. That is from his Lenten sermon to the council in 1546, speaking to the text, O Lord, if in this time the kingdom in Israel were to be restored, he began by comparing the extent of Christianity post-Paul with the situation in his own day. Egypt, Africa, Sicily, and the Middle East, all lost to the infidels. Large parts of Europe and the Balkans overrun, with populations decimated, and civil government destroyed. Basing his call upon the text of St. John on Patmos in Revelations, he exhorted the assembled fathers to turn to a life of spirituality, beginning with the work of repentance, in this perhaps echoing Cardinal Pole's opening address to the council. Only in this way could they begin the building of the new spiritual Jerusalem to replace the old fallen kingdom of Israel. He concluded with a passionate and personal statement, it is not I who preach, but through me, an infinite number of the pious. Through me, thy church is preached. This sermon presented two themes in Carranza's thinking that will be seen repeatedly in his later work. Firstly, and in a way parallel to that proposed by Pole, he maintained the need for a personal repentance for the Christian in the sinful world as a start point for the spiritual journey. And secondly, and an idea that's seen particularly in his work in England, later in Toledo, and his vigorous sponsoring of Episcopal residence, the concept of a poor church, or rather the concept of the church as an institution using its wealth for the benefits of the poor. As an imperial theologian and as a leading Spanish Dominican, Carranza played a vital role in the first two sessions of the Council of Trent from 1545 to 1551. There his writings and opinions dealt with the key theological issues where the Catholic Church had at last clearly to define its position vis-a-vis -vis the Protestants, and had to do so in a way that did not break with past teachings, whilst remaining intellectually coherent. He did this by reverting, as a good Dominican would naturally do, to the writings of his fellow Dominican, St. Thomas Aquinas, using these as a basis for rejecting Protestant teachings on the core matter of justification, and thus the whole Protestant case for the abolition of the Catholic ecclesiastical hierarchy. His opinions were virtually in complete agreement with the eventual Trent decrees and are a demonstration of his total theological orthodoxy. 
can answer used for its authority, both scripture and tradition. That is, the Catholic Church as a source and guardian of that tradition. Thus here he rejected the Protestant justification doctrine, sola fide, that is, justification by faith alone. Fundamentally disagreeing with the Protestants, he denied that faith alone could be the cause of justification, coupling with faith in the process, repentance and works, and thus the need for an intermediary priestly caste. As well as addressing the core theological problems, the Council in its Catholic Reformation work focused on the criticism by Luther and the Protestants on the whole structure of the Catholic Church, the rationale for its existence, and the authority upon which it was based. That is, criticism used the concept of sola scriptura, that is, only those sacraments and articles of faith found in the Bible should be accepted. Carranza addressed these criticisms directly. Within this general area of conflict, he detailed a number of specific controversies between Protestants and Catholics. The first was how much authority should be given to the customs of the church that have been handed down over the ages to our time from the apostles and the fathers. The second controversy was which takes priority, canonical scripture or the traditions of the church. The third was whether the rule and definition of things pertaining to the faith belonged to the apostolic head, i.e. the Bishop of Rome. Carranza's response to all of these was a robustly argued claim for the historical position of the Catholic Church. In parallel with this doctrinal counter-reformation work, which was pleasing to the Pope, Carranza also addressed the need for Catholic reformation, which was pleasing to the Emperor. He focused, as, as had Pohl's original on the reform of the Church, on the fundamental question of Episcopal residence. Carranza demonstrated that by divine law, bishops were required to reside in their dioceses. Carranza was also fervent in citing the ills caused by absentee clergy. And I quote from his sermon, and what examples of this doctrine does this deplorable age show us? How was the whole of Germany lost, except through the absence and idleness of the pastors? Whilst the secular princes fled, the pastors were lacking. The wolves entered the sheepfold, and in the absence of the shepherds, they ravaged and chased out the sheep, so that now misery abounds as a result of the various sects and heresies. What was responsible for alienating the whole of the Church of England? And thus it was that hardly one shepherd risked his life for the sake of his sheep. When Carranza and Pohl came to work together on the reform of the church in England, high on the list of the decrees of the London Synod was one requiring clerical and especially Episcopal residence. In 1548, Carranza was appointed as Philip's confessor, and in 1554 he accompanied him to England for Philip's marriage to Mary. Carranza's role was to work with the English clergy on the restoration of the Catholic Church in England. It is possible to see Carranza's work with Pohl in reversing the changes that had been introduced into the Church in England since Henry VIII's time as mirroring that of Cranmer. The London Synod, in which Carranza was deeply involved, matched the Cranmer and Cromwell's Vicegerential Synod of 1537-8. His text how all Christians should hear the Mass provided a Catholic guide that paralleled Cranmer's The True and Catholic Doctrine of the Use of the Lord's Supper. In reforming the universities, Carranza replaced Cranmer's continental imports with his fellow Dominicans, Pedro de Soto and Juan Villagarcia, both of whom were also be instrumental in convincing Cranmer of his theological errors and thus obtaining his recantations. Carranza arranged the removal of the Bible and English from churches, thus removing a source of dispute. Now only trained priests could interpret the Bible for their flocks. Furthermore, Carranza's catechism was designed as a response to the numerous catechisms and religious publications that were being produced on the continent. Cranmer's catechism was but a translation of one of these. In 1557, Philip, having seen Carranza's work at Trent and in England, and having used him also against heresy in the Netherlands, appointed him as Archbishop of Toledo. Toledo was not only the leading archbishop in Spain, it was also possible the most important ecclesiastical position in the Catholic world after that of the papacy. Its holder was also normally a cardinal. A little side story, when you go into Toledo Cathedral, you will see cardinals' hats hanging from the ceiling. The story that goes with them is that only when one of those hats falls to the ground does his previous owner be allowed into heaven out of purgatory or wherever else he's going. 
The role of primate also meant the Qurans would be able directly to influence and control the operations of the church in much of the Spanish peninsula. The archbishop also wielded enormous secular power through the lordships and revenues that he controlled, over 1,500 benefices, 19,000 vassals, and 20 fortresses. He was also ex officio chancellor of Castile, an earlier archbishop, Cardinal Mendoza, under the Reyes Catholicos, Ferdinand and Isabel, had been so powerful as to be known as El Tercere, the third monarch. And now this is what you've all been waiting for. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Carranza, as primate of Spain, instructed Fernando Valdez, the Archbishop of Seville, and the Grand Inquisitor, to return to his diocese and to take up residence there. Valdez was residing at the court of the Infanta Juana, Philip's sister, and regent in his absence. In 1557, the Inquisition had made a series of arrests in Seville and Valladolid of groups that they declared were Lutheran. Their number include a number of Carranza's fellow Dominicans and members of local aristocratic families. Their confessions implicated Carranza, a man of undoubted orthodoxy. Valdez struck back at Carranza, who was arrested by the Inquisition and charged with heresy. He was then held for eight years in prison in Spain, whilst Philip and the Pope bickered over where and how he should be tried. And while Philip was always short of money, enjoyed the revenues of the archbishopric. He was then sent to Rome and had to wait another nine years under house arrest before he was tried, found innocent, but had to abjure a number of Lutheran propositions which he'd never held. Shortly after his release, he died. In the Carranza affair, what was always appears surprising was the failure of Philip II to prevent his arrest in the first place and then to provide any support for the man he'd only recently nominated to be Prime of Spain, a man who had been appointed to be his confessor in 1548, who he'd taken to England with him and designated specifically to work with Cardinal Pole on the return of England to the Catholic faith. Carranza had in his writings at Trent and in England shown his complete and unswerving orthodoxy. His catechism was adopted for general use by the Council of Trent, the Spanish Inquisition placed it on the index of forbidden books. Yet when called by Carranza as a witness to testify as to his knowledge of the reasons for the enmity between Valdez, the Inquisitor General, and Carranza, an enmity which was eventually disqualified the former as a judge in Carranza's case, Philip's comments were tepid and guarded. And I, quote, and I could not know if for this or any other reason there was hatred or enmity between them, but if there had been, it was in their way of thinking and no one can be judged or sure of this. This compared poorly with the reply of his sister, Joanna, the regent, who stated unequivocally that she was well aware of the situation and of the reasons for it, quote, except that it appeared to me that the Archbishop of Seville Valdez, the Inquisitor General, was aggrieved that they wanted to send him back to his diocese. What is clear is that Philip, perhaps following his father, the ex-emperor Charles V, was deeply concerned, less Protestant heresy, should infect his Spanish kingdoms, as Holland and Germany and England had already been infected. Philip, troubled by problems with heretical subjects in the Netherlands and in England, looked to his father for advice. Later he was to say, I remember a lesson that His Majesty taught me very many years ago, and things have gone well for me when I followed it, and very badly when I did not. I could not and must not fail to support the Inquisition, as I shall do all my life. Now, the Spanish Inquisition had been founded by Ferdinand and Isabella, the first rulers of the United Spain, and the conquerors of Granada, the last Muslim left in Spain, grown out of the Reconquista, the reconquest of Spain from the Moors. It was intended to be a bulwark for the monarchy against any hidden fifth column element of the Muslims or Jews. Its protection of Catholic orthodoxy was thus an integral element of the Spanish ideology. Philip II's support for the work of the Inquisition can be seen by his very public attendance at the Alta da Fe at Valladolid in 1559, when 12 of those who had been rounded up by the Inquisition in 1558 were burnt at the stake. What such Alta da Fe, the fate of Carranza, and indeed those of the Archbishops Cranmer and Pole display is the impact upon them at a personal level of the maelstrom of doctrinal conflict unleashed by Luther when transmuted into conflicts over questions of ideology and thus ultimately royal authority and power. The result of the identification of a ruler with a particular religious orthodoxy 
became the seedbed for the religious wars that ravaged Europe for years. The Habsburg War against England, marked by Elizabeth's support for the Dutch and the Great Armada, continued until 1604. That against the Dutch until 1609, and the Thirty Year War until 1648. Formula for resolving such conflicts was found in the 1555 Peace of Augsburg between the Roman Catholic Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and the Schmalkaldic League, a military alliance of Lutheran princes within the empire. Even though there's supposed to be an agreement, there's still a huge division down the center. This disagreement used the principle quius regio eus religio, that is the official religion of each state would be that of the ruler. Although it settled the immediate problem, it almost immediately gave rise to further devastating conflicts involving all the Habsburg realms, France, non-imperial Germany, the Netherlands, and Scandinavia and England. These conflicts dragged on until 1648. It is estimated up to 8 million people died during the wars that devastated much of Europe. You may remember the later Enlightenment view of the ideological justification for such bitter conflicts. It can be found in Dean Swift's Gulliver's Travels, where the war between Lilliput and Blefescu is whether a boiled egg should be eaten from its big or its little end. And in 1999, the Lutheran and the Roman Catholic churches came to a historic agreement. They stated together that they now share a common understanding of our justification by God's grace through faith in Christ. When I first found this out some time ago, I thought, that's jolly interesting. Oh, now that's happened. So I telephoned the Lutherans in London and said, can you tell me about this? Can you give me information? The Lutherans came out and said, yes, we have this wonderful agreement. It's now all settled. And I rang up the Catholic Diocese of Westminster and said, can you tell me all about this? They said, no, no, we don't know anything about that at all. I'll leave that there. Thank you very much. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.